Well, we are um, beginning a new conversation, a new series today for the next eight weeks, um, talking about faith and politics. Faith and politics. Uh, to be honest, this isn't easy for me. I would rather, um, as like a pastor, like stay in my lane, um, my lane, you know, and just talk about like spiritual things and compartmentalize our faith, right, from the rest of life. Um, but we can't avoid this, can we? Like to be human in America right now is to be political in some way. It's to have some sense um, about what's happening around us and to, and to form an opinion, a paradigm around it. Uh, see, pa politics is part of everyday life, isn't it? Um, every Christian, every person is political. Um, I want to say we can avoid it, but we can't, can we? Um, I don't know about you, but I've been getting phone calls and messages from political campaigns, text messages. Um, I have no idea how they got my information. Uh, so you, you can pretend like you're going to avoid it, but eventually it's going to find you, won't it? Um, whether that's in the form of a text message, a phone call, or like a political ad that shows up in the minute of your three-minute YouTube video, you know what I'm talking about? Um, like it always happens, like, it's like really like three-minute video and you're going to throw an ad in on me right at the end. Um, or whether it's your favorite like football star or team making some form of a statement, uh, we have to face it. Like maybe you watched uh, Thursday Night Football like me, today's the first day of uh, Eagles football. Um, and, you know, you watch the, the season opener and you, you know that there's some political messaging going on. You just can't avoid it. And, and maybe, maybe you're like, hey, I, I just want to watch football. I don't want football and politics to mix. I don't want my sports and my politics. And, you know, I've heard some people say, like, hey, just preach the gospel and leave politics out of it. Um, in the same way they don't want their football and politics to mix. Um, maybe if you're like me, you've even said, like, who needs politics? Who needs it? It's all smoke and mirrors. It's all a game that's being played. It's corrupt. So let's just get rid of it. Let's, who, why should we care? And so really, that's our first question today, is why care? Why engage? How do we engage? As followers of Jesus, how do we care? How do we engage? What's our aim? Is it avoid, to avoid political engagement? And just work on saving souls? Should faith and politics be separate? Is our goal to make our government more Christian? To get them on our side? Is our goal to protect myself and my rights? for my people to win, whoever that is. I see many Christians right now in a defensive posture. A fight for their rights, for their freedoms. Is that our goal? Is that our goal? And how, how do we engage when something has become so polarized, so antagonizing, and so combative? How do we follow the words, works, and ways of Jesus in the public square?
honestly, I have more questions than I have answers. And um, I'm going to do my best along with some friends from the uh, End Campaign, this book, and a few other resources. Um, and you could check out those resources at our website, uh, themillpa.church slash politics. Um, and then as we gather in the neighborhood in the following weeks, we'll, we'll be joined by some others, some friends of mine uh, who are doing great work along these lines, and we're going to hear some of their stories and to take some steps in processing this together. Um, we're going to do what Dallas Willard called Think About Our Thinking. So what I want you to do is I want you to take your Bible out and turn to Luke chapter 10. And if you're with us in the room this morning and you want to stand for a moment, let's, we can do that. And um, let's start in verse 25, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to in- inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, Then he put him in his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? Who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, Go and do the same. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for your words that are life to us and that have a great application to our lives today, that the words of Jesus have rung on for generations. And today we ask for your help from your Holy Spirit that we might hear them and apply them in light of all that is happening around us, that we may live out the words, works, and ways of Jesus today in the midst of of a polarizing world in the midst of politics, in the midst of anger and frustration, um, in the midst of division and oppression. Help us to be peacemakers, part of your work of shalom, of restoration, of redemption in the neighborhood. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, Lord, be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Be seated. All right. So we're going to unpack this text in a minute, but... Remember, let's go back, let's take a step back. Remember, we are redemption story people. So the overall story of redemption informs the way that we view Scripture. 
And so our first truth this morning is simply God is a God of order. God is a God of order. If we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, the beginning of the story, and we, re- we read that God creates everything good, right, and beautiful. It's an ordered world. It's not haphazard. It's not haphazard. There's order to the way God put things together. So what, when I say the phrase separation of church and state, what comes to mind when you hear that? What comes to mind when you hear that? Now, I'm going to speak for myself, and we all have different experiences. We all have different paradigms. Um, I was primarily raised in a culture, a church culture, that taught me that separation of church and state was bad, that it was a part of the erosion of morality in our nation, that it was in a way a form of persecution against Christians. Like we've said, some see faith and politics as very separate. Others see them deeply intertwined. Others want politics that support their views on morality. Others want politics that support social justice. Like there's a wide gamut of ways in which the church and and politics has interacted. And we're going to do a lot of asking why. Why do I see things this way? Why do I see things that way? Is this the way of Jesus? And and so just initially, though, we need to remember that God is a God of order. And we must resist the impulse to reject government and politics and to swing the pendulum, right, toward maybe anarchy or something. See, Romans 13 teaches us that uh, the government is a God-ordained institution, that it exists as God's servant for your good. Now, we might say, wait a minute, government hasn't been good. You know, um, uh, politics, government, that's part of the problem. Yes, that might be true, but I want us to see that at the foundational level, government is God-ordained. Order, government is good. Now, as people of the redemption story, we will remember that sin, that our rebellion and our pull towards self-reliance distorted and corrupted God's perfect order, right? And as the authors of the Compassion and Conviction book write, as a result, we swing now between disorder and on one side, and overly harsh rules and roles and systems that trample on humanity's God-given rights on the other. So we see this pendulum swinging. And we see that play out in the narrative of Scripture, right? God, with the people of Israel, is trying to lead them without the same government structure borrowed by the corrupt symptoms of the world. Now, it doesn't mean he doesn't have structure and order. There's a lot of order in the way God is doing things. See, God, at the, from the very beginning, has been using order and government to free people. Yet Israel wanted to be like the nations of the world. They wanted a king. They rebelled against God's loving order and reign. And this is what we do, right? In our sin and in our rebellion, we use power and corrupt government to oppress and lead others with harsh, harsh authoritarianism. Uh, Or on the opposite extreme, we allow people just to impose their self-expression on others without accountability. So we see this pendulum swinging. Disorder on one end, oppressive rules and systems on the other. Right? But all through that, we need to remember that government is God-ordained. That order is good. Um, Without order, people are less likely to acknowledge their responsibilities, their rights of others, and human dignity in general. We need order. The Compassion and Conviction book goes on to say, order, safety, and justice are the primary purposes of government. Order, safety, and justice. Yet no government gets it completely right, do they? We know that. 
But regardless, as followers of Jesus, we come into the political arena, we step into the political arena with a foundational value that order is good. That order is good. And that government's primary purpose is order, safety, and justice. Listen, government doesn't exist to promote the church. As a matter of fact, the actual like, law, the separation of church and state, the amendment says, Congress shall make no laws respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In other words, government does not exist to promote any particular religious system or sect or denomination. It was, a, it was meant, listen, this separation of church and state, it was meant to avoid the relationship between church and government like the one the founders were fleeing in England. One where a certain denomination received the official stamp of approval from the state and other denominations and religions were persecuted. Separation of church and state just means that all religious systems and um, denominations are, are welcome at the table. Religious freedom for Christians means religious freedom for those who are not Christians. And my fear when I hear Christians talk about America as a Christian nation is that they are seeking an official stamp of approval from the government. Friends, that's not necessary. To follow Jesus does not require that our government officially promote our religion. Actually, as we go through this these conversations, I think we'll see that the success of Jesus' kingdom has never been tied to the kingdoms of this world. The success of Jesus' kingdom has never been tied to the kingdoms of this world. However, the separation of church and state should never mean that we don't allow our values as followers of Jesus to influence the way that we build society together. We should not be afraid to advocate and vote and dialogue around these values, whether they are religious or secular in nature. Actually, it's impossible, listen, it's impossible to separate laws and politics from values of any kind, right? Every decision is based on some values being applied to the issue at hand, right? And what we want to do is learn how do we discern those values and dialogue and process them together. A fear I have is that we've lost our ability to do this as a collective society. And my hope is that as Jesus people, we can demonstrate how to bring people with different values together at the table and dialogue and process how our values impact the culture as a whole. And we can be salt and light in the public square. All right, so we've said this. Let's just summarize. Number one, government is God-ordained. On a fundamental level, order is good. And politics is simply a means of organizing ourselves. It's, a, it's how we order ourselves as society, and we should not be afraid of that even though it can get quite ugly and imperfect because of our broken world, all right, one. Two, as followers of Jesus, we have a responsibility to bring our values to the public square, to our political engagement. Because following Jesus impacts all of life, we bring these values with us to the political arena. However, as the end campaign uh, writers remind us, not every tenet of Christianity should become the law of the state. We're not called to create a government that simply enforces our religion. Christianity is not about coercing people into agreeing with us. I remember logging into a class in seminary. It was, called, it was an intercultural missions class. So we were exploring the way uh, missions and God's kingdom works across multiple cultures and trying to understand um, the way culture, different cultures hear and receive things. And the first thing that came out of the professor's mouth 
on the first class was, Christianity is violent. And I was like, whoa, hold your horses, buddy. Like, violent? I mean, the Crusades were a long time ago. He didn't say Christianity was violent. He said Christianity is violent. I mean, don't you mean Christianity has been violent? I mean, really, are we violent right now? And that phrase has stuck with me ever since then, and I think I've started to see what he means by that. You see, one of the ways that we've been violent is in our attempts to coerce people into agreement, to use power and control to manipulate people into behavior modification, to look to government to simply enforce our beliefs. That's violent. And you might be having a hard time with this, and believe me, I was. I was really offended when I heard him say this. I could not wrap my head around how this faith was violent. But let me put it this way. As a parent, I want my my kids to grow in the values of the kingdom of God, right? So I have two options. One, I can control them. I can push them into these values through domination, manipulation, coercion, strict discipline. In other words, It's my way or the highway. You live like this or you're out. You're punished. You're disciplined. If you want to be loved or valued, you earn it. You earn it by behaving rightly. And when I'm, um, and because I'm generally afraid of what might happen, if you don't, I will use all the means necessary to get you to conform. That's option one. Option two, I can empower you to make choices. I can teach you my values. I can give you the vision and dream behind my values. I can demonstrate to you the way of Jesus and and how I live into these values. I can invite you into these values, but it's really up to you. I can't control you. I can help you see where your choices hurt others. I can provide discipline when your choices harm the family or dishonor the dignity of others. But I cannot coerce you into living a certain way. You have to exercise your free will. But as a parent, I will give you every opportunity to learn how to make those choices on your own. So that when you get to the bigger choices in life, you've had some practice. You see the difference between those two options? Frankly, one is violent. Option one is violent. It doesn't honor the free will of my child. It doesn't value their ability to make choices. It doesn't teach them that they are a powerful human being. It's rooted in my fears and insecurities. I need to control you because you are a reflection of me, and I'm afraid that you'll make bad choices. This has been our posture as a church often, one of fear. And so in our fear, in our fear, we turn to control. We turn to manipulation. We turn, turn to coercion. And maybe you've experienced this form of the church, this kind of being in the church, and frankly, it has killed our ability to engage as Christians in the public square and has misrepresented Jesus time and time again. All right, we have a responsibility as Jesus followers to engage our values. We've said that, but we must do so from the perspective of love, not fear. Separation of church and state is not our enemy. It's a reminder that Christianity is bigger than government, and no government should exist to promote our religion. Jesus doesn't need government to legislate his kingdom. He doesn't need a PR department in the state. So as we engage in politics, we do so from the angle of love, not fear. Friends, we gotta process our fears because they're driving us. As a parent, I've gotta work through my fears. Otherwise, I will parent my children out of fears and insecurities. 
And whether I intend to or not, I will manipulate and control them. As such, as people of God, we have to unwind our fears in the political arena, an arena that is already too dictated and defined by fear. Um, The writers of Compassion and Conviction remind us that Christianity has something to offer in the area of politics. The Christian tradition offers a deep concern for the person and for personhood. People are not to be treated as mere tools or mere economic units, but as whole human beings who are meant to thrive and flourish. We must affirm human dignity. All right, so to recap. Number one, government order is God-ordained. It's, on, it's good on a fundamental level. Politics is simply a means of how we organize ourselves, how we order ourselves, and we shouldn't be afraid of that, even if it's ugly and imperfect because of our sin and rebellion. Number two, as followers of Jesus, we have a responsibility to bring our values to the public square, to our political engagement, because following Jesus impacts everything we do in life. And three, our posture should be one of love, not violence and fear, And we need to see through the deep fears that drive our motivations under the surface. Fears that oppose the way of love. All right, so to get to our text. Finally, today I want to suggest that the primary driving force behind a follower of Jesus' engagement in politics is the love of neighbor. If you remember nothing else today, remember that the whole point, the whole point is the other. It's the neighbor. In our text today, we read of an expert of the law who asked Jesus the question, what must I do to inherit this life that you're speaking of? Now, Jesus is not simply suggesting that eternal life is a destination, right? He's inviting us into his kingdom life now. And so what sets apart kingdom people? What sets apart people that are defined by this Jesus life? The love of God and the love of neighbor. So the next logical question which this expert brings to Jesus is, well, who's my neighbor, Jesus? The Jesus people understood to some degree anyway that loving God looked like. They kind of got the loving God part. But then all of a sudden now Jesus is suggesting that the love of neighbor and the love of God are married together. These two commandments are intricately interwoven. You cannot love God without deep love for neighbor, and you cannot love neighbor without the love of God. So back to the question, who is my neighbor? Well, simply put, anyone can be your neighbor. Our neighbors are not just our friends or our allies or those that are part of our group. We are invited by Jesus to see our enemies as our neighbors. The Samaritan represented the other to the Jews. They were the outsiders. They were the ones who, when you see them, you get a little uneasy in your stomach, right? We live in a very binary society. Like, these are the ones who are in, these are the ones who are out. Liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, Jew, Gentile. You get it. Go on and on. Well, Jesus, listen to what it says in Ephesians 2. Christ is our peace. He has made both Jews and Gentiles into one group. With his body, he broke down the barrier of hatred that divided us. He canceled the detailed rules of the law so that he could create one new person out of two groups, making peace. He reconciled them as one body 
When he came, he announced the good news of peace to you who are far away from God and to those who are near. And we both have access to the Father through Christ by one spirit. See what Jesus is doing? (laughs) Jesus is not just sitting on the wall in the middle trying to balance both sides. He's breaking down the wall. He sees things from a totally new perspective. Jesus is inviting the expert of the law into a totally new way of seeing the world. Not just some weird middle ground, right, where we try to balance like liberal and conservative and, you know. No, his invitation is to be kingdom people who see the world with a different framework. And we'll talk more about that framework in a few weeks. But the whole point of that framework is love God and love neighbor. And as followers of Jesus, we advocate for and engage for the sake of our neighbor. The primary focus is our neighbor. It's not to advocate for our own rights, our, our, our own privileges. It's not to serve ourselves. It's not to promote our religion. It's not to win political battles. It's to give ourselves away. Remember the word we've been using? Anybody? Starts with a K. Kenosis. It's giving ourselves away. It's laying down ourselves for the sake of another. We're called to be a neighbor to all. All who we have a capacity and opportunity to be a neighbor to. Friends, if we really believe the redemption story, if that's the driving narrative and identity in our lives, we listen, we don't need the government or politics to give us anything. We have everything in Christ. The government can take away everything we have, and we still have everything. We have ultimate victory in Jesus. Nothing in the world can replace what we have in Christ. No political ideology can replace the kingdom of God. So we can be free. We can be indifferent to engage in the public square, to engage in politics for the sake of our neighbor to seek shalom, reconciliation, healing, and wholeness. Too many Christians are engaging in politics to protect themselves. And I want to just say that's not the way of Jesus. Listen, love for neighbor requires action. It requires engagements. It's not okay to walk by the man on the side of the road and to turn our gaze away from our neighbor. Hey, beautiful. It's not okay. Jesus ties love for neighbor to action. Are you willing to give away yourself for another? Are you willing to pay for the other's recovery? Are you willing to put the other on your horse and take them to the inn to get restored? Are you willing to devote your attention to lay down your privilege, to give away your resources, your reputation for the other? These are the questions we must ask. The end campaign asks us, loving our neighbors is not the same. Listen, loving our neighbors is not the same as simply not hating them. If you never left home and avoided all interaction with other people, you couldn't be characterized as a loving person. Instead, you might even be unloving because of your lack of concern for others. Loving our neighbor means we are willing to give ourselves away. James 2 says, my brothers and sisters, what good is it if people say they have faith but do nothing to show it? Claiming to have faith can't save anyone. 
Imagine a brother or sister who is naked and never has enough food to eat. What if one of you said, go in peace, stay warm, have a nice meal? Peace to you, right? What good is it if you don't do, do anything actually, um, you know, give them what their body needs? 1 Corinthians 10 says, no one should look out for their own advantage, but they should look out for each other. Philippians 2 says, don't do anything for selfish purposes, but with humility think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for the better, for what is better for others. I think that should be the the verse, as we enter the public sphere, as we want, if you want to, yes, let's get involved, let's engage, let's advocate, but are you advocating more for yourself or for the good of others? My friend Dan White Jr. recently posted, if you love your neighbors, you must care about the common good, and if you care about the common good, you must learn to collaborate with those you have differences with. Now, we'll talk about collaboration in another, another session, but as followers of Jesus, love for neighbor is our driving motivator. We must care about the common good. See, if we understand politics, it, listen, we said politics is a means of ordering our life together collectively, right? And so if, 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 if loving our neighbor means we care for the common good, then, 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 then we cannot just walk by and avoid the conversation altogether. We have to participate in it. And as Jeremiah 29 says, promote the welfare of the city which I have sent you into. Listen, we're all affected by what happens in politics in the public square. And so we should pray and we should take action out of concern for it, for the sake of our neighbor. There's a ton of biblical examples you could follow out. You could check out Joseph, Moses, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Paul in the book of Acts. And we'll post some of those things on our website. But simply to love others as we love ourselves, to love our neighbor means to give them the care and consideration that we provide to ourselves. So as we engage in the political arena, we are thinking of, of others, and we are, we are saying, can this person have what I would want for myself? If we were negatively impacted by injustice, we would advocate for ourselves, wouldn't we? And so according to Scripture, we should love them the way we would love ourselves. All right. This might be an extreme example, but I saw this post floating around, and I'm going to kind of end with this. I'm gonna stake myself. I'm gonna stick myself out there with this one. Do, do you see that image in there, Ed? It's on the bottom. It should be. <clears throat> All right. I don't know where I saw this, but yeah, that's it. So I saw this floating around on on social on media, right? And here it says, if you kill a preborn sea turtle, a hundred thousand dollar fine, one year in prison. If you kill a preborn bald eagle, $250,000 fine, two years in prison. If you kill a preborn human being, no penalty. All right, so let's unpack this a minute, okay? I want to do a little leg exercise here. Um, now, on the surface, this might seem like, hey, let's leave that up, Ed. Can we leave it up for a second? Or is it, is it killing my, my let's leave, leave it up for one second, all right? Let's, Smack dab right over your face. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> you don't need to look at my face anymore, right? All right, let's, I just want to unpack this, right? Now, <clears throat> this might seem like a very pro-life message on the surface. And now I believe, I believe human dignity and that we've been talking about, I believe it begins at the womb. And I believe that's a, a, a value of the kingdom of heaven, that all life you know, it has dignity, even the life in the womb, right? But what message do you see here? Maybe you could 
help me, some of you in the room, if you're bold. Uh, I mean, what, what message is this intrinsic, intrinsically saying? Right, that's one. Yes. And yeah, and so to follow that logic out, so if you have an abortion, you should be penalized. penalized. Okay, thank you. Perfect. So, like, that's to me when I read that. That's where I go with this. All right, and and here's where this breaks down. Right, it comes back to fear, doesn't it? Let's be honest. I, if one of my daughters has an abortion. The, the last thing that I want is for them to be fined or put in prison. Okay? Like, I mean, have you ever spoken with someone who's had an abortion? Is this what we would want for ourselves? If I had an abortion, if, if you had an abortion, would you want to be fined and put in prison? I mean, is that really what you want? Is that what we want for our daughters? Is that how you want to be treated? See, here's where we need another way, a way of compassion and conviction. I can be deeply convicted that life in the womb is valuable and important, while at the same time, compassion and empathetic towards those weighing these challenging life decisions. Look, let me be vulnerable for a moment. Sarah, our second child, she was a surprise. And I love her, and we're so glad she's part of our life, right? But it wasn't planned, and there was an initial moment and a season of fear where we found out we were pregnant, and it was scary, and we were in the midst of transition, and it didn't seem like the right moment. You know, and it was hard. And to put messages out there like this, it oversimplifies complex challenges and communicates guilt and shame and judgment. And these messages are rooted in fear, not love. If we are to approach civic issues like abortion with love for neighbor as our primary lens, a totally different way of living and acting opens up to us. If one of my girls had an abortion, I don't want them to be shamed or punished. What if they were alone or afraid or in fear themselves? I want them to come close to me. I don't want them to be put in prison. I, want, I, I don't want them to be pushed away. I want to make space to be present with them in this immensely challenging moment to seek to understand and empathize, to enter their world with compassion. And that compassion does not require that I celebrate their choices. No, but I, I can have convictions. But in that moment, that is not the moment to condemn or to punish. It's fine. Leave it off. This isn't easy, friends. This requires kenosis. It requires unpacking our fears and our prejudices and our presuppositions that have gone unprocessed. It's so easy to throw up messages like this without thinking about it and without processing it. And the invitation from Jesus this morning is to go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Go and see differently. Don't engage in the polarizing either or approach that's rooted in fear, but engage from a new framework, a framework rooted in love for God and neighbor. So as we encounter political messages like this, it's really important, listen, that we face the motivations in our heart and we see from a different angle. As we see those that are on the side of the road as we, as we encounter messages, as we encounter uh, political messaging, we have to ask ourselves some questions. And this is where I want to end today. Caitlin Schuss, she, she says this, when, when we approach 
political messages, even if it's just quick images, you know, GIFs and whatever, that memes that you see come across your feed. Here's, what I, here's, the, here's the questions we need to ask ourselves. Who is this asking me to love? Who is this asking me to fear or hate? And what kind of good life is this describing? And how can I be conscious of that so I can recognize when it doesn't line up with the ways, words, and works of Jesus? Who is this asking me to love? Who is this asking me to hate or fear? What kind of good life is this describing? Friends, we need a new framework, a framework that's rooted in love for God and for neighbor. It's not rooted in fear and in self-protection and self-promotion. Next week, we process in a backyard, around a circle. We get messy. It's not easy. Join us then. As we go to the table this morning, what is disrupting in your heart today? What is challenging you this morning? Where have the messages that you've bought into just simply um, fallen into a polarizing um, way of looking at things rather than seeing through the framework of love for others? I hope this is helpful this morning. It's not easy. I don't have answers. I have lots of questions. But I have a dream and a vision that we can live into another way.